Brothers in Arms, written by Margaret Weiss, narrated by Chris Sorensen. Warp, the threads which are extended lengthwise in the loom, usually twisted harder than the weft or woof, with which these threads are crossed to form the web or piece. Weft, the threads that cross from side to side of a web, at right angles to the warp threads, with which they are interlaced. Oxford English Dictionary, Second Edition Book One I don't care about your name, Red. I don't want to know your name. If you survive your first three or so battles, then maybe I'll learn your name. Not before. I used to learn the names, but it was a goddamned waste of time. As soon as I'd get to know a puke, he'd up and die on me. These days I don't bother. Horkin, Master at Wizardry Chapter One Mists shrouded the Tower of High Sorcery at Weyrith, and a light rain fell. The rain shimmered on the mullioned windows. Drops welled up on the thick stone ledges of the windows, overflowed to trickle down the black obsidian walls of the tower, where the raindrops collected in puddles in the courtyard. In that courtyard stood a donkey and two horses loaded with blanket rolls and saddlebags, ready for travel. The donkey's head was lowered, her back sagged, her ears drooped. She was a spoiled donkey, fond of dry oats, a snug stable, a sunlit road, and a slow and easy pace. Jenny knew of no reason why her master should travel on such a wet day, and had stubbornly resisted all attempts to drag her from her stall. The burly human who had attempted to do so was now nursing a bruised thigh. The donkey would still be in her warm stall, but she had fallen victim to a ruse, a foul trick played on her by the big human. The fragrant smell of carrot, the lush scent of apple, these had been her temptation and her downfall. Now she stood in the rain, feeling much put upon and determined to make the big human suffer, make them all suffer. The head of the conclave, the master of the Tower of Weyrith, Parsalian, gazed down upon the donkey from the window of his chambers in the North Tower. He saw the donkey's ears twitch, and he winced involuntarily as her left hind hoof lashed out at Caramon Magere, who was endeavoring to secure a pack onto the donkey's saddle. Caramon had fallen victim to the donkey once this day, and he was on the lookout. He, too, had seen the tell-tale ear-twitch, understood its portent, and managed to dodge the kick. He stroked the donkey's neck and produced another apple, but the donkey lowered her head. By the look of her, Parsalian thought he knew something about donkeys, though few would have believed it. The ornery beast was contemplating rolling on the ground. Blissfully unaware that all his careful packing was on the verge of being dislodged and squashed flat, not to mention soaked in a puddle, Caramon began loading the two horses. 
Unlike the donkey, the horses were glad to be away from the confinement and boredom of the stalls, were looking forward to a brisk canter and the chance to stretch their muscles, see new sights. The horses frisked and stamped and danced playfully on the flagstone, blowing and snuffling at the rain and looking eagerly out the gates at the road beyond. Parsalian, too, looked at the road beyond. He could see where it led, could see the road far more clearly than others at that time on Crin. He saw the trials and travails. He saw the danger. He saw hope, too, though its light was dim and wavering as the magical light cast by a crystal atop a young mage's staff. Parsalian had purchased this hope, but at a terrible cost, and at the moment Hope's light did little more than reveal to him more dangers. He must have faith, however. Faith in the gods, faith in himself, faith in the one he had chosen as his battle sword. His battle sword stood in the courtyard, miserable in the rain, coughing fitfully, shivering, and chilled as he watched his brother, limping slightly from his bruised thigh, ready the horses for their journey. A warrior such as the brother would have rejected such a sword outright, for it was, to all appearances, weak and brittle, liable to break at the first pass. Parsalian knew more about this sword than did the sword itself, perhaps. He knew that the iron will of the young mage's soul, having been tempered with blood, heated by fire, shaped by fate's hammer, and cooled with his own tears— was now finest steel, strong and sharp. Parsalian had created a fine-honed weapon, but like all weapons, it had a double edge. It could be used to defend the weak and the innocent, or to attack them. He did not know yet which way the sword would cut. He doubted if the sword knew. The young mage wearing his new red robes plain homespun robes without adornment, for he had no money to purchase better, stood huddled beneath a rose-tree blooming in the courtyard, finding what shelter he could from the rain. The thin shoulders of the young man shook occasionally. He coughed into a handkerchief. At every cough, his brother, hale and robust, would pause in his work to glance back at his frail twin anxiously. Parsalian could see the young man stiffen with irritation, could see his lips move and almost hear his curt admonition for his brother to get on with his task and leave him be. Another person bustled out into the courtyard, just in time to prevent the donkey from spilling her load. A neat and dapper man of middle years, wearing gray robes, he would not spoil his white robes with the stains of travel and a hooded cloak, Antimides was a welcome sight. His cheerful air seemed to dispel the gloom of the day as he chided the donkey, all the while fondling her ears and instructed the robust twin on some point of packing, to judge by the hand-waving and gesticulating. Parsalian could not hear their conversation, but he smiled at the sight. Antimides was old friend, mentor, and sponsor to the young mage. Antimides lifted his head and gazed at the north tower, looking up at Parsalian looking down.
though Antimides could not see the head of the order from where he stood in the courtyard. He knew perfectly well that Parsalian was there, and that he was watching. Antimides frowned and glowered, making certain that Parsalian was aware of his ire and disapproval. The rain and the mist were Parsalian's doing, of course. The head of the conclave controlled the weather around the Tower of High Sorcery. He could have sent his guests off in sunshine in springtime had he chosen to do so. In truth, Antimides was not that upset about the weather. It was merely an excuse. The real reason for Antimides' ire was his disapproval of the way Parsalian had handled the young mage's test in the Tower of High Sorcery. Antimides' disapproval was so strong that it had cast a cloud over the two men's long friendship. The rain was Parsalian's way of saying, I understand your concern, my friend, but we cannot live all our days in sunshine. The rose tree needs the rain to survive, as well as the sun. And this gloom, this dreary darkness is nothing, my friend, nothing compared to what is yet to come. Antimides shook his head as if he had heard Parsalian's thoughts, and turned grumpily away. A practical and pragmatic man, he didn't appreciate the symbolism, and he resented being forced to start out on his journey wet to the bone. The young mage had been watching Antimides closely. When Antimides turned away and went back to placating his irate donkey, Raislin Magere turned his own gaze to the North Tower, to the very window where stood Parsalian. The archmage felt the gaze of those eyes, golden eyes whose pupils were the shape of hourglasses, touch him, prick his flesh as though the tip of the sword's blade had sliced across his skin. The golden eyes, with their accursed vision, gave no hint of the thoughts behind them. Raistlin did not understand fully what had happened to him. Parsalian dreaded the day when Raistlin would come to understand, but that had been part of the price. Was the young mage bitter, resentful, Parsalian wondered. His body had been shattered, his health ruined. From now on he would be sickly, easily fatigued, in pain, reliant on his stronger brother. Resentment would be natural, understandable. Or was Raistlin accepting? Did he believe that the fine steel of his blade had been worth the price? Probably not. He did not yet know his own strength. He would have time to learn, the gods willing. He was about to receive his first lesson. All the archmages in the conclave had either participated in Raistlin's test, or they had heard about what had occurred during the test from their colleagues. None of them would accept him as an apprentice. His soul is not his own, said LaDonna of the Black Robes, and who knows when the buyer will come to claim his property. The young mage needed instruction, needed training not only in magic but in life. Parsalian had done some discreet investigation and found a teacher whom he hoped would provide a suitable course of study. A rather unlikely instructor, but one in whom Parsalian had a lot of faith, though this instructor would have been astounded to hear so.
Acting under Parsalian's instructions, Antimides inquired if the young mage and his brother would be interested in traveling east during the springtime to train as mercenaries with the army of the renowned Baron Ivor of Langtree. Such training would be ideally suited to the young mage and his warrior brother, who needed to earn their bread and butter, all the while honing their martial skills. Skills they would need later, unless Parsalian was very much mistaken. There was no need for hurry. The time of the year was early fall, the season when warriors begin to think of putting away their weapons, start search for a comfortable place to spend the cold winter days by the fire, telling tales of their own valor. Summer was the season of war, spring the season of preparing for war. The young man would have all winter to heal, or rather, he would have time to adapt to his handicap, for he would never heal. Such legitimate work would prevent Raistland from exhibiting his talents in the local fairs in exchange for money, something he'd done in the past, much to the shock of the conclave. It was all very well for illusionists or unskilled practitioners of the art to make spectacles of themselves before the public, but not for those who had been accepted into the conclave. Parsalian had yet another motive for sending Raistlin to the Baron, a motive the young man would never, if he was lucky, come to know. Antimides had his suspicions. His old friend Parsalian never did anything just for the doing of it. All his means were aimed at a specific end. Antimides had endeavored to find out, for he was a man who loved secrets as a miser loves his coins, liked to count them over in the night, fondle them and gloat over them. But Parsalian was close-mouthed, would not fall victim to even the most cunningly laid snare. The small group was at last ready to set out. Antimides climbed upon his donkey. Raistlin mounted his horse with assistance from his brother, assistance that he accepted churlishly and with an ill grace by the looks of it. Caramon, with exemplary patience, made certain his brother was settled and comfortable, and then he swung himself easily into the saddle of his own large-boned steed. Antimides took the lead. The three headed toward the gate. Caramon rode with his head down against the slashing rain. Antimides left with a backward glare for the north tower window, a glare expressive of his extreme discomfort and irritation. Raistlin halted his horse at the last moment, turned in the saddle to gaze at the Tower of High Sorcery. Parsalian could guess what was going through the young man's mind. Much the same had gone through his mind when he had been young. How my life has changed in only a few short days. I entered this place strong and confident. I leave it weak and shattered, my vision cursed, my body frail. Yet I leave this place triumphant. I leave with the magic. To gain that, I would have traded away my very soul. Yes, Parsalian said quietly, watching until the three had ridden into the magical forest of Weyrith, and there vanished from his mortal sight. His mind's eye kept them in view much longer. 
Yes, you would have. You did. But you don't know that yet. The rain fell harder. Antimides would be cursing his friend heartily now. Parsalian smiled. They would have sunshine when they left the forest. The sun's heat would bake them dry. They would not have to ride long in wet clothes. Antimides was a wealthy man, fond of his comforts. He would see to it that they slept in a bed in a reputable inn. He would pay for it, too, if he could find a way to do so that would not offend the twins, who had only a few meager coins in their purses, but whose pride would have filled the coffers of Polanthus. Parsalian turned from the window. He had too much to do to stand there, staring out into a curtain of rain. He cast a wizard-lock spell upon the door, a strong spell that would keep out even the most powerful mages, mages such as LaDonna of the Black Robes. Admittedly, LaDonna had not visited the tower in a long, long time, but she took great delight in arriving unexpectedly and at the most inopportune moments. It would never do for her to find him involved in these particular studies. Nor could he allow any of the other mages who lived in or frequented the tower to find out what he was doing. The time was not right to disclose what little he knew. He did not yet know enough. He had to learn more, to discover if what he had begun to suspect was true. He had to learn more, to ascertain if the information he had gleaned from his spies was accurate. Certain that no one short of Solinari, god of white magic, could break the spell cast upon the door, Parsalian seated himself at his desk. On the desk, which was of dwarf make, a present from one of the thanes of Thorbardin in return for services rendered, lay a book. The book was old, very old, old and forgotten. Parsalian had found the book only by references made to it in other texts, else he himself would not have known of its existence. At that he'd been forced to search for it for a great many hours, searched through the library of the Tower of High Sorcery, a library of reference books and spell books and magical scrolls, a library so vast that it had never been catalogued. Nor would it ever be catalogued, except in Parsalian's mind, for there were dangerous texts there, texts whose existence must be carefully guarded, texts known only to the heads of the three orders, certain texts known only to the master of the tower himself. There were also texts of whose existence even he was not aware, as proven by the book in front of him a book he had finally discovered in a corner of a storage room, packed either mistakenly or by design in a box labeled Child's Play. Judging from the other artifacts to be found in the box, the box itself had come from the Tower of High Sorcery in Polanthus and dated back to the time of Huma. The box had undoubtedly been among those hastily packed when the mages had swallowed their pride and abandoned their tower, rather than declare all-out war upon the people of Ancelon. The box marked Child's Play had been shoved into a corner 
and then forgotten in the chaos following the cataclysm. Parsalian brushed his hand gently over the leather cover of the old book, the only book to be found in the box. He brushed away the dust and mouse droppings and cobwebs that had partially obliterated the book's embossed title, a title whose letters he felt as bumps beneath his fingertips, a title that raised bumps on his flesh. Chapter 2 The trees of Wayrith Forest, wayward and magical guardian of the Tower of High Sorcery, lined up like soldiers on parade duty, stood tall and silent and stern beneath the lowering clouds. Guards of honor, said Raistlin. For a funeral, muttered Caramon. He did not like the forest, which was no natural forest but a wandering and unexpected forest, a forest that was nowhere in sight of a morning and all around you in the evening a dangerous forest to those who entered it unawares. He was thankful when they finally left the forest, or perhaps it was the forest who finally left them. Whichever way it was, the trees took the clouds with them. Caramon removed his hat and lifted his face to the sun, basking in the warmth and the radiance. I feel like I haven't seen the sun in months, he said in a low voice, with a baleful backward glance at the Wayrith forest, now a formidable wall of wet black-bold trees, shrouded in gray mist. It's good to be away from that place. I never want to go back, not as long as I live. There's absolutely no reason you should, Caramon, Raistlin said. Believe me, you will not be invited back. Nor he added an undertone, will I. That's good, then, Caramon said stoutly. I don't know why you'd want to go back. Not after. He glanced at his brother, saw his grim expression, the eyes glinting, and faltered. Not after, well, what they did to you. Caramon's courage, which had been squashed flat in the Tower of High Sorcery, was reviving wonderfully in the warm sunshine, out from under the shadows of the watching, distrustful trees. It's not right what those mages did to you, Raced. I can say it now that we're away from that horrible place, now that I'm sure no one's going to turn me into a beetle or an ant or something just for speaking my mind. I mean no offense, sir, Caramon added, shifting his attention to their traveling companion, the white-robed Archmagus Antimides. I appreciate all you've done for my brother in the past, sir, but I think you might have tried to stop your friends from torturing him. There was no need for that. Raistland could have died. He very nearly did die. And you didn't do a thing, not a damn thing. Enough, Caramon, Raistland admonished, shocked. He glanced anxiously at Antimides, who, fortunately, did not appear to have taken offense at Caramon's blunt statement. It almost appeared as if the Archmages agreed with what had been said. Still, Caramon was behaving like a buffoon as usual. You forget yourself, my brother, Raistlin stated angrily. Apologize. 
Raistlin's throat constricted. He could not breathe. He let fall the reins to grip the pommel of the saddle, so weak and dizzy he feared he might fall from the horse. Leaning over the pommel, he tried desperately to clear his throat. His lungs burned, just as they had during the time years back when he'd been so sick, the time he'd collapsed in his mother's grave. He coughed and coughed but could not catch his breath. Blue flame flickered before his eyes. This is the end, he thought in terror. I cannot survive this one. The spasm eased suddenly, and Raistland drew in a shuddering breath. Another, and another. His vision cleared. The burning pain subsided. He was able to sit upright. Fumbling for a handkerchief, he spit out the phlegm and the blood, used the handkerchief to wipe his lips. His hand closed over the handkerchief quickly, stuffed it back into the silken cord belt he wore around his waist, tucked the stained cloth in the folds of his red robes so that Caramon did not see it. Caramon was off his horse, standing at Raistlin's side, regarding him with anxiety, arms outstretched, ready to catch him should he fall. Raistlin was angry at Caramon, but more angry at himself, angry at the momentary twinge of self-pity that had wanted to sob out, Why did they do this to me? Why? He gave his brother a scathing look. I am quite capable of sitting on a horse without assistance, my brother, he said caustically. Make your apologies to the Archmagus, and then let us proceed. And put your hat back on. The sun will fry what few brains you have left. No need for you to apologize, Caramon, Antimides said mildly, though his gaze, when it fell upon Raistlin, was grave. You spoke your heart. No harm in that. Your care and concern for your brother are perfectly natural. Laudable, in fact. And that is intended as a rebuke to me, Raistlin said to himself. You know, don't you, Master Antimides? Did they let you watch? Did you watch me kill my twin? Or what turned out to be the illusion of my twin? Not that it matters. The knowledge that I have it within me to commit such a heinous act is the same as the deed. I horrify you, don't I? You don't treat me as you used to. I'm no longer the prize discovery the young and gifted pupil you were so proud to exhibit. You admire me grudgingly. You pity me, but you don't like me. He said none of this aloud. Caramon remounted his horse in silence, and in silence the three rode off slowly. They had not traveled ten miles when Raistlin, weaker than he'd anticipated, stated that he could go no farther. The gods alone knew how he had pushed himself this far, for he was so weak that he was forced to allow Caramon to help ease him from the saddle, half carry him inside. Antimides fussed over Raistlin, ordering the best room in the inn, though Caramon said many times over that the common room would do for them both, and recommending the broth of a boiled chicken to settle the stomach. Caramon sat by Raistlin's bed, 
gazing at him helplessly, until Raistlin, annoyed beyond endurance, ordered his brother to go about his business and leave him to rest. But he could not rest. He was not sleepy. His mind was active if his body was not. He thought of Caramon, downstairs flirting with the barmaids and drinking too much ale. Antimides would be down there, too, eavesdropping on conversations, picking up information. The fact that the white-robed wizard was one of Parsalian's spies was an open secret among the denizens of the tower, a secret not hard to deduce. A powerful archmages, who could whisk himself from place to place with a few words of magic, did not travel the dusty roads of Ancelon on the back of a donkey, unless he had good reason to want to dawdle in inns and gossip with the innkeepers, all the while keeping an eye on who came in and who went out. Raistlin left his bed to sit at a small table next to a window, a window looking out onto a wheat field, bright gold against the green of the trees, beneath a sun-filled blue sky. In his eyes, the cursed, hourglass eyes of enchantment, first inflicted in ancient days as a lesson on the arrogant and dangerous renegade sorceress Rilana, Raceland saw the wheat turning brown with the coming of autumn, drying up, its stalks stiff and brittle, to break beneath the snow. He saw the leaves on the trees wither and die, drift down to lie in the dust until they were blown away on cold winter winds. He shifted his gaze from the dismal view. He would spend this precious time, this time alone, on study. He opened and laid out on the table the small quarto that contained information about the precious staff of Magius, the magical artifact given to him by Parsalian as, what, compensation? Raistlin knew better than that. Taking the test had been his choice. He had known going into the test that it would change him. All candidates are given that warning. Raistlin had been going to remind Caramon of this fact before the coughing fit seized him and wrung him like a dog rings a knotted dish towel. Mages had died during the test before this, and the only compensation their families received was the mages' clothes sent home in a neat bundle, with a letter of condolence from the head of the conclave. Raistlin was one of the fortunate ones. He had survived with his life, if not his health. He had survived with his sanity, although he sometimes feared his hold on that was tenuous. He reached out to touch the staff, which was never far from his grasp. During their days in the tower, Caramon had rigged a means of carrying the staff on horseback, lashing the staff on the back of the saddle, always near to Raistlin's hand. The smooth wood tingled with the lightning feel of magic beneath his fingers, acted as a tonic, easing his pain. Pain of body, pain of mind pain of soul. He meant to read the book, but he found himself distracted, pondering this strange weakness with which he was afflicted. He had never been strong, not like his hale and robust twin. Fate had played him a cruel joke, 
had given his twin health and good looks and a guileless winning nature, had given Raistlin a weak body, nondescript looks, native cunning, a quick mind, and a nature incapable of trust. But in compensation, fate or the gods had given him the magic. The tingle of the feel of the magical staff seeped into his blood, warming it pleasantly, and he did not envy Caramon his ale or his barmaids. But this weakness, this burning of fever in his body, this constant cough, this inability to draw a breath as if his lungs were filled with dust, the blood on the handkerchief, the weakness would not kill him, at least so Parsalian had assured him. Not that Raistlin believed everything Parsalian told him. White-robed mages did not lie, but they did not necessarily tell you the truth, either. Parsalian had been extremely vague when it came to explaining to Raistlin just exactly what was wrong with him what it was that had happened to him during the test to have left him in such a weak and pitiful condition. Raistlin remembered the test clearly, most of it at least. The magical tests were designed to teach the mage something about himself, also to determine the color of the robes he wore, to which of the gods of the magic he pledged his allegiance. Raistlin had gone into the test, wearing white robes to honor his sponsor, Antimedes. Raistlin had come out wearing red, the robes of neutrality, honoring the goddess Lunatari. Raistlin did not walk the paths of light, nor did he walk the shadowed paths of darkness. He walked his own path, in his own way, of his own choosing. Raistlin remembered fighting with a dark elf, he remembered a terrible memory, the elf stabbing him with a poisoned dagger. Raistlin remembered pain, remembered his strength ebbing. He remembered dying, remembered being glad to die. And then Caramon had come to rescue him. Caramon had saved his twin with the use of his twin's one gift, the magic. It was then, in a jealous rage, that Raistlin had killed his brother except that had only been an illusion of his brother, and Caramon had seen his brother slay him. Parsalian had permitted Caramon to watch this part of the test, the last part. Caramon now knew the darkness that twisted and writhed in his twin's soul. Caramon should by rights hate his twin for what he'd done to him. Raistlin wished Caramon would hate him. His brother's hatred would be so much easier to bear than his pity. But Caramon did not hate Raistlin. Caramon understood, or so he said. I wish I did, Raistlin said bitterly. He remembered the test, but not all of it. A part was missing. When he looked back on the test in his mind, it was like looking at a painting that someone had deliberately marred. He saw people, but the faces were blotted out, smeared over with black ink. And ever since the test, he had the oddest feeling, the feeling that someone was following him. He could almost feel a hand about to touch his shoulder, 
the whiff of a cold breath on the back of his neck. Raistlin had the impression that if he could just turn around quickly enough, he'd catch a glimpse of whatever it was that lurked behind him. He'd caught himself more than once whipping his head around, staring over his shoulder. But there was never anyone there, only Karaman with his sad and anxious eyes. Raistlin sighed and banished the questions, which wearied him for no good reason, for they led him nowhere. He set himself to read the book, which had been written by a scribe attached to Huma's army, and which occasionally mentioned Magius and his wondrous staff. Magius, one of the greatest wizards ever to have lived, a friend of the legendary knight Huma, Magius had assisted Huma in his battle against the Queen of Darkness and her evil dragons. Magius had placed many enchantments on the staff, but he had left no record of them, a common practice among magi, particularly if the artifact was exceptionally powerful and they feared it might fall into the wrong hands. Generally, the master passed the artifact and the knowledge of its power on to a trusted apprentice, who would hand it on in turn. But Magius had died before he could hand over the staff. Whoever used the staff now would have to puzzle out its abilities for himself. After only a few days' study, Raistlin had already learned from his reading that the staff gave the possessor the ability to float in the air as lightly as a thistledown, and that, if used as a club, its magic would increase the force of a blow, so that even someone as weak as Raistlin could deal considerable harm to an enemy. These were useful functions, but Raistlin was quite certain the staff was far more powerful. The reading was slow going, for the language was a mixture of Salamnic, which he had learned from his friend Sturm Brightblade, and common and a slang used by soldiers and mercenaries. It would often take Raistlin an hour to figure out the meaning of a single page. He read again a passage, which he was certain was important, but one that he had yet to understand the meaning of. We knew that Black Dragon was nearby, for we could hear the hissing of solid rock dissolving in the deadly acid of the foul worm's spittle. We could hear the creak of its wings and its claws scrape against the castle walls as it climbed over them in search of us. But we could see nothing, for the dragon had cast upon us some sort of evil magic, which quenched the sunshine and made all dark as the worm's own heart. The dragon's plan was to come upon us in this darkness and slay us before we could battle it. Huma called for torchlight, but no flame could we kindle in the thick air, which had been poisoned by the fumes from the dragon's deadly breath. We feared that all was lost, and that we would die in this unholy darkness. But then Magius came forward, bearing light. I know not how he accomplished it, but the crystal of the staff he bore drove away the darkness, and let us see the terrible monster. We had a target for our arrows, and, by Huma's command, we launched our attack. Several pages detailed the killing of the dragon, which Raistlin skipped over impatiently as information he would probably never need to know. 
No dragon had been seen on Kryn since Yuma's time, and there were those who were now saying that even then they were only creatures of myth, that Huma had made it all up in order to glorify himself, that he'd been nothing but a showman, a self-aggrandizing liar. I asked a friend how Magius had caused his staff to shine with such a blessed light. The friend, who had been standing near the wizard at the time, said that Magius spoke but a single word of command. I asked what the word was, for I thought it might be of use to the rest of us. He maintained that the word was shark, which is a type of monstrous fish that lives in the sea and bites men in twain, or so I have heard sailors tell. I do not think he is right, for I tried the word myself secretly one night when Magius had left his staff propped up in a corner, and I could not make the crystal light. I can only suppose that the word is a foreign one, perhaps elvish in nature, for Magius is known to have dealings with their kind. Shark, Raceland sniffed. Elvish! What a fool! The word was obviously spoken in the language of magic. Raceland had spent a frustrating hour in the tower, trying every phrase that he could think of in the arcane tongue every word that bore even a remote resemblance to shark. He had about as much luck causing the crystal atop the staff to light as had that long-dead and unknown soldier. A burst of laughter came from downstairs. Raceland could distinguish Caramon's booming guffaw among the shriller voices of the women. At least his brother was pleasantly occupied and not likely to barge in and disturb him. Raistlin turned to look at the staff. Elem Shardish, he said, which meant, by my command, a standard phrase used to activate the magic in many an artifact. But not this one. The crystal, held fast in a golden replica of a dragon's claw, remained dark. Frowning, Raistlin looked down at the next phrase he'd noted on his list. Sharkum pass adistus, another common magical command, which meant roughly, do as I say. The command did not work either. The crystal gleamed, but only with a beam of reflected sunlight. He continued on through the list, which included, Omus Sharpuk der Li, for it will be so, to Shirkit Muan, which meant, obey me. Raistlin lost patience. Alunatari Zidish, Shirak Damon Du. The crystal atop the staff burst into brilliant, radiant light. Raistlin stared, astonished, and tried to recall what he'd said, the exact words. His hand trembling, his gaze divided between the wondrous magical light and his work, he wrote down the phrase, Alunatari Zidish. Shirak Damon Dew, and its transition, Oh, for God's sake, light damn you. And there was the answer. Raistlin felt his skin burn in embarrassment and was extremely thankful he had not mentioned his puzzlement to anyone, especially Antimides, as he'd considered doing. I am the fool, he said to himself, making something simple into something difficult. Shark. Chirac, 
light. That is the command. And to douse the light? Dulac. Dark. The magical light in the crystal blinked out. Triumphant, Raistlin unpacked his writing equipment, a small quill made of a trimmed goose feather, and a sealed bottle of ink. He was entering his discovery in his own small journal when his throat seemed to thicken and swell, shutting off the windpipe. He dropped the quill, causing an ink blot upon the journal, and coughed and choked and struggled for breath. When the spasm passed, he was exhausted. He lacked the strength to lift the feather quill. Barely able to creep back into his bed, he lay down thankfully, resentfully, to wait for the dizziness, the weakness to pass. Downstairs, another roar of laughter. Caramon was in rare form, apparently. Out in the hallway, Raistlin heard two pairs of footfalls and Antimity's voice. I have a map in my room, friend. If you could just be so good as to show me the location of that goblin army, here is some steel for your trouble. Raistlin lay in his bed and struggled to breathe while life went on around him. The sun moved across the sky. The shadows of the window frame slid across the ceiling. Raistlin watched them and wished for a cup of the tea he drank that would ease his pain and wondered fretfully that Caramon did not come up to check on him, to see if there was anything he needed. But when Caramon did come, late in the afternoon, doing his best to creep into the room without making any noise, he knocked over a pack and woke Raistlin from the first peaceful sleep he'd had in days, for which mistake Caramon received a bitter tongue-lashing and was ordered out of the room. Ten miles in a single day, hundreds of miles to go to reach their destination. The journey was going to be a long one. Chapter 3 Raistlin felt better, stronger the next few days. He was able to travel more hours during the day. They reached the outskirts of Qualanesti in good time. Although Antimides assured them that there was no hurry, that the Baron would not muster his army until springtime, the twins hoped to reach the Baron's headquarters, a fortress built on an inlet of New Sea, far to the east of Salus, before winter set in. They hoped to be able to at least have their names entered upon the rolls, to perhaps find a way to earn some money in the baron's service, for the twins were now desperately short of coins. Their plans were thrown awry, however. A river crossing proved disastrous. They were fording the elf stream when Raistlin's horse slipped on a rock and went down, throwing his rider into the water. Fortunately, the river was slow and sluggish in mid-autumn, after the rushing of snowmelt in the spring. The water broke his fall, and Raistlin received no greater injury than loss of dignity and a dunking. But a soaking rainstorm that night prevented him from drying off. A chill set in and struck through to the bone. The next day he rode shivering beneath a hot sun, and by nightfall had fallen into feverish delirium. Antimides, who had rarely been sick in his life, knew nothing about treating illness. Had Raistlin been conscious, 
he could have helped himself, for he was a skilled herbalist. But he wandered in dark dreams, horrifying dreams, to judge by his cries and his moans. Desperate with worry for his twin, Caramon risked entering the woods of the Qualanesti elves, hoping to be able to find some among them who would come to his brother's aid. Arrows fell thick as wheat stalks at his feet, but that did not deter him. He shouted to the unseen archers, Let me talk to Tannis Half-Elven. I am a friend of Tannis's. He will vouch for us. My brother is dying. I need your aid. Unfortunately, the mention of Tannis's name seemed to make matters worse, not better, for the next arrow pierced Caramon's hat, and another grazed his arm, drawing blood. Admitting defeat, he cursed all elves heartily, though under his breath, and retreated from the woods. The next morning Raistlin's fever had abated somewhat, enough to permit him to speak rationally. Clutching Caramon's arm, Raistlin whispered, Haven, take me to Haven. Our friend Lemuel will know what to do for me. They traveled to Haven with speed, Caramon holding his ill brother in his arm, propped up in front of him on his saddle, and Timides galloping behind, leading Raistlin's horse by the reins. Lemuel was a mage. He was an inept mage, a reluctant mage, but he was a mage and he and Raistlin had developed an odd sort of friendship on an earlier ill-fated trip to Haven. Lemuel still held a fondness for Raistlin, and readily welcomed him and his brother and the archmages to his house. Giving Raistlin the very best bedroom, Lemuel saw to it that Antimides and Caramon were comfortable in other rooms of the large house, then set about doing what he could to help the gravely ill young man. He is very sick, there's no doubt about that, Lemuel told the distraught Caramon. But I don't believe there is cause for alarm. A cold that flew to his chest. Here is a list of some herbs I need. You know where to find the herbalist shop. Excellent. Run along, and don't forget the Ipecac. Caramon left, almost staggering with fatigue, but unable to sleep or rest until he was assured his twin was being treated. Lemuel made certain that Raistlin was resting as comfortably as possible, then went to the kitchen to fetch some cool water, to lave the young man's skillet-hot body, to make some attempt to reduce the fever. He encountered Antimides enjoying a cup of tea. Antimides was a middle-aged human, dapper in his dress, wearing fine, expensive robes. He was a powerful mage, though economic with his power. He didn't like to soil his clothes, as the saying went. By contrast, Lemuel was short, tubby, of a cheerful disposition. He liked nothing better than to work in his garden. As for magic, he had barely enough to boil water. Excellent brew, this, said the archmagus, who had, in fact, boiled the water himself. What is this? Chamomile with a touch of mint, said Lemuel. I picked the mint this morning. How is the young man? Antimides asked. Not good, said Lemuel, sighing. I didn't like to say anything with his brother around, 
but he has pneumonia. Both lungs are filled with fluid. Can you help him? I will do what I can for him, but he is very ill. I am afraid. Lemuel's voice trailed off. He shook his head again. Antimides was silent a moment, sipping at his tea and frowning at the teapot. Well, perhaps it is better this way, he said at last. My dear sir, Lemuel exclaimed, shocked. You can't mean that. He's so young. You see how he has changed. You know that he took the test. Yes, Archmagus. His brother told me. The change is quite remarkable. Lemuel shivered. He cast the Archmagus a sidelong glance. Still, I suppose the Order knows what it is doing. He cocked an ear down the hallway, listening for his patient, whom he had left in a fitful, troubled sleep. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? Antimides muttered gloomily. Lemuel was uncomfortable at this, not certain how to reply. Filling his basin with water, he started to leave. You knew Raistlin before, I believe, Antimides stated abruptly. Yes, Archmages, Lemuel said, turning back to his guest. He has visited me several times. What do you think of him? He performed a very great service for me, sir, Lemuel replied, flushing. I am in his debt. Perhaps you have not heard that story. I was being driven out of my home by a cult of fanatics who worshipped a snake god. Belzor, I think his name was, or some such thing. Raistlin was able to prove that the magic the cultists claimed came from the gods was actually ordinary run-of-the-mill magic. He very nearly died. Antimides used the sugar spoon to wave away death and gratitude. I know, I heard. Aside from that, what do you think of him? I like him, said Lemuel. Oh, he has his faults, I admit that. But then which of us does not? He is ambitious. I was ambitious once myself at that age. He is completely and wholly dedicated to the art. Some might say obsessed, Antimides observed darkly. But then so was my father. I believe you knew him, sir. Antimides bowed. I had the honor, a fine man and an excellent wizard. Thank you. I myself was a sad disappointment to my father, as you can imagine, Lemuel said with a self-deprecating smile. When I first met Raistlin, I said to myself, This is the son my father wanted. I felt a kind of brotherly feeling toward him. Brother? Be thankful you are not his brother, Antimides said sternly. The Archmages frowned so darkly, spoke in such a solemn tone that Lemuel, who could make nothing of this strange statement, excused himself by saying he had to go check on his patient, and left the kitchen with haste. Antimides remained at the table, so absorbed in his thoughts that he forgot the tea in the cup. Near to death, is he? I'll wager he doesn't die. You, 
He glowered at the thin air, as if it held a disembodied spirit. You won't let him die, will you? Not without exerting every effort to save him, for if he dies, you die. And who am I to judge him after all? Who has foreseen the role he is destined to play in the terrible times that are fast approaching? Not I, that is for certain. And not Parsalian either, though he would like very much for us to think so. Antimides looked gloomily into the teacup, as if he could read the future in the leaves. Well, well, young Raistlin, he said after a moment. I am sorry for you, that much I can say. Sorry for you and sorry for your brother. The gods, if there be gods, help you both. Here's to your health. Antimides raised the teacup to his lips and took a sip. Finding the tea cold, he immediately spit it back out. Raistland did not die. Whether it was Lemuel's herbs, Caramon's patient nursing, Antimides' prayer, or the watchful care of one on another plane of existence, one whose life force was inextricably bound up with the life of the young mage, or whether it was none of these and Raistlin's will alone that saved him, no one could say. One night after a week during which he hovered in a no-man's land between life and death, life won the battle. The fever broke, he breathed easier, and sank into a restful sleep. He was weak, incredibly weak, so weak that he could not lift his head from the pillow without his brother's strong arm to support him. Antimides postponed his own journey, lingered in Haven long enough to see that the young man had pulled through. Certain that Raistlin would live, the Archmagus left for his own home, hoping to reach Balafor before winter storms made the roads impassable. He gave Caramon a letter of introduction to be given to Baron Ivor in Antimides' absence. Don't kill yourselves getting there, said Antimides on the day of his departure. As I tried telling you before, the Baron will not be happy to see you now anyway. He and his soldiers will sit idle all winter, and you two would just be two more mouths to feed. In the spring he will begin receiving offers for his army's services. Never fear that you will lack work. The Baron of Langtree and his mercenaries are well known and well respected throughout this part of Ancelon. He and his soldiers are in high demand. Thank you very much, sir, said Caramon gratefully. He helped Antimides mount the recalcitrant Jenny, who had taken quite a liking to Lemuel's sweet apples and was in no hurry to resume her journey. Thank you for this and for everything that you have done for us. Caramon flushed. About what I said back there, when we were riding out of the forest. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. If it hadn't been for you, sir, Race never would have fulfilled his dream. Ah, dear me, my young friend, Antimides said with a sigh, resting his hand on Caramon's shoulder. Don't lay that burden on me as well. He gave Jenny a flick of the riding crop on her broad rump, which did nothing to improve her temper, 
and the donkey trotted off, leaving Caramon standing in the middle of the road, scratching his head. Raceland's health mended slowly. Caramon worried that they were a burden to Lemuel, and hinted more than once that he thought his brother could make the trip back to their home in Solace. But Raceland had no desire to return to their home, not yet. Not while he was still weak, his appearance so terribly altered. He could not bear the thought of any of their friends seeing him like this. He envisioned Tannis's concern, Flint's shock, Tasselhoff's prying questions, Sturm's disdain. He writhed at the thought and vowed by the gods of magic, by all three gods of magic, that he would never return to Solace until he could do so with pride in himself and with power in his hand. In answer to Caramon's concerns, Lemuel invited the two men to stay as long as they needed, to stay all winter if they wanted. The shy and diffident mage enjoyed the company of the two young men. He and Raistland shared an interest in herbs and herb lore, and when Raistland was stronger, the two of them spent the days quite pleasantly pounding up leaves with a mortar and pestle, experimenting with various ointments and salves, or exchanging notes on such topics as how best to rid roses of aphids and chrysanthemums of spider mites. Raistlin was generally in a better humor when he was in Lemuel's company. He curbed his sarcastic tongue in Lemuel's presence, was much kinder and more patient with Lemuel than he was with his own brother. Prone to self-analysis, Raistlin wondered why this should be so. One obvious reason was that he genuinely liked the cheerful and unassuming mage, Unfortunately, he also found that part of his kindness stemmed from a vague sense of guilt in regard to Lemuel. Raistlin couldn't define his guilt or understand the reason for it. So far as he could remember, he had never done or said anything to Lemuel for which he needed to apologize. He had committed no ungenerous act, but he felt as if he had, and the feeling bothered him. Oddly enough, Raistlin discovered that he could not walk into Lemuel's kitchen without experiencing an overwhelming sense of dread, which always brought the image of a dark elf to mind. Raistlin could only assume that Lemuel had somehow been involved in his test, but how or why he had no idea. And, search his mind as he might, he could not dredge up the memory. Once assured that Raistlin was out of danger, and that Lemuel really wanted them to stay, that he wasn't just being polite, Caramon settled down to enjoy the winter in Haven. He earned a few coins by doing odd jobs for people, chopping wood, repairing roofs damaged in the fall rain, helping bring in the harvest, for he and Raistlin insisted on helping with Lemuel's household expenses. Thus Caramon came to know a great many of the town's citizens, and it was not long before the big man was as popular and well-liked in Haven as he had been in Solace. Caramon had girlfriends by the score. He fell in love several times a week, and was always on the verge of marrying someone but never did. The girls always ended up marrying someone else, 
someone richer, someone who did not have a wizard for a brother. Caramon's heart was never truly broken, although he swore it was often enough, and would spend the afternoon telling Lemuel in dolorous tones that he was finished with women for good, only to be entwined in a pair of soft, warm arms that very night. Caramon discovered a tavern, the Haven Arms, and made that his second home. The ale was almost as good as Odix, and the scrapple, made with scraps of pork stewed with meal and pressed into cakes, was much better than Odix, although Caramon would have allowed himself to be stewed with meal before he admitted it. Caramon never went to the tavern, he never went out to work, he never left the house before making certain that there was nothing he could do for his brother. Relations between the two, strained almost to the breaking point after the terrible incident in the tower, eased over the winter. Raistlin had forbidden Caramon ever to mention the occurrence, and the two never discussed it. Gradually, after thinking it over, Caramon came to believe that his apparent murder at the hands of his twin was his fault, a belief that Raistlin did not dispute. I deserved death at my brother's hands, was the thought lurking somewhere in the back of Caramon's mind. He did not blame his brother in the least. If somewhere deep inside him some part of Caramon was grieved and unhappy, he took care to trample on that part until he had stomped it into the soil of his soul, covered it with guilt, and watered it generously with dwarf spirits. He was the strong twin, after all. His brother was frail and needed protection. Deep inside himself, Raistlin felt shame for his jealous rage. He was appalled to learn that he had the capability within him to kill his brother. He, too, trampled on his emotions, smoothed out the soil so that no one, least of all himself, would ever find out anything had been buried there. Raistlin comforted himself with the idea that he'd known all along the image of Caramon wasn't real, that he'd murdered nothing but an illusion. By Yule time, the relationship between the twins was almost back to what it had once been before the infamous test. Raistlin did not like the cold and snow. He never ventured out of Lemuel's comfortable house, and he enjoyed listening to Caramon's gossip. Raistlin enjoyed proving to his own satisfaction that his fellow mortals were fools and idiots, while Caramon took immense pleasure in bringing a smile, albeit a sardonic smile, to his twin's lips, lips that were too often stained with blood. Raistlin spent his winter months in study. He knew now at least some of the magic contained within the staff of Magius, and though he found it frustrating to know that there were more spells that he did not know, perhaps would never know, he reveled in the knowledge that he possessed the staff and others did not. He worked on his war wizard spells as well, in preparation for the day soon coming when he and Caramon would join up with the mercenary army, there to make their fortunes, of that both young men were firmly convinced. Raistlin read numerous texts on the subject, many of them left behind by Lemuel's father, 
and he practiced combining his magic with Caramon's swordsmanship. The two killed a great many imaginary foes and a tree or two, several of Raistlin's early fire-based spells having gone awry, and were soon confident that they were already as good as professionals. Congratulating themselves on their skill, they agreed between them that they could take on an army of hobgoblins all by themselves. They half hoped that such an army might attack Haven during the winter, and when no hobgoblins ventured near, the twins expressed resentment against the entire race of hobgoblins, a soft race who would apparently rather skulk about in warm caves than go to battle. Spring came to Haven, returning with the robins, the kender, and other wayfarers, bringing proof that roads were open and the traveling season had begun. It was time for the twins to head east, to find a ship to take them to Langtree Manor, located in the town of Langtree on the Green, the largest city in the barony of Langtree. Caramon packed clothes and food for the trip. Raistlin packed his spell components, and the two made ready to leave. Lemuel was genuinely sorry to see them go, and would have made Raistlin a present of every plant in the garden had Raistlin permitted it. The tavern Caramon frequented nearly shut down from sorrow, and the road out of Haven was literally paved with weeping women, or so it seemed to Raistlin. His health had improved over the winter, Either that or he was learning to cope. He sat on his horse with confidence and with ease, enjoying the soft spring air which seemed better for his lungs to breathe than the sharp cold air of winter. The knowledge that Caramon was keeping a watchful eye on his twin caused Raistlin to make light of any weakness he felt. He felt so well that they were soon able to ride almost ten leagues in a day. Much to Caramon's dismay, they skirted Solace, taking a little-known animal trail discovered when they were children. "'I can smell Odic's potatoes,' said Caramon wistfully, sitting up in the saddle, sniffing. "'We could stop at the inn for dinner.' Raistlin could also smell the potatoes, or at least he imagined he could, and he was suddenly overwhelmed with homesickness. How easy it would be to return, how easy to relapse once more into that comfortable existence, to make his living tending colicky babies and treating old men's rheumatism, how easy to sink into that cozy, warm feather bed of a life. He hesitated. His horse, sensing its rider's indecision, slowed its pace. Caramon looked at his twin hopefully. We could spend the night at the inn, he urged. The inn of the last home, where Raistlin had first met Antimides, where he had first heard the mage tell him of the forging of a soul. The inn of the last home, where people would stare at him, would whisper about him. Raistlin drove the heels of his boots hard into his horse's flanks, causing the animal, unaccustomed to such treatment, to break into a trot. Raced? The potatoes? Caramon cried, his horse galloping to catch up. We don't have the money, Raistlin returned shortly, coldly. Fish in Crystalmere Lake are free to eat. 
The woods charged nothing for us to sleep in them. Caramon knew very well that Odic would not ask them to pay, and he sighed deeply. He brought his horse to a halt, turned to look back longingly at Solace. He couldn't see the town which was hidden in the trees, except in his mind. The mental image was all the more vivid. Raistland checked his horse. Caramon, if we went back to Solace now, we would never leave. You know that as well as I. Caramon didn't respond. His horse shuffled nervously. Is that the life you want? Raistland demanded, his voice rising. Do you want to work for farmers all your life, with hay in your hair and your hands steeped in cow dung? Or do you want to come back to solace with your pockets filled with steel, with tales of your prowess on your lips, displaying scars of your battles to adoring barmaids? You're right, raced, Caramon said, turning his horse's head. That's what I want, of course. I felt a sort of tugging feeling, that's all, like I was being pulled back, but that's silly. There's no one left in Solace anymore, none of our old friends, I mean. Sturm's gone north. Tannis is with the elves, Flint with the dwarves. And who knows where Tasselhoff is? Or cares, Raistlin added caustically. One person might be there, though, Caramon said. He glanced sidelong at his twin. Raistlin understood the unspoken thought. No, said Raistlin. Kidiara is not in solace. How do you know? Caramon asked, astonished. His brother had spoken with unshaken conviction. You're not... not having visions, are you? Like... well, like our mother... I am not suffering from second sight, my brother, nor am I given to portents and premonitions. I base my statement on what I know of our sister. She will never come back to solace, Raistland said firmly. She has more important friends now, more important concerns. The trail between the trees narrowed, forcing the two to ride single file. Caramon took front, Raistland fell in behind. The two rode in silence. Sunlight filtered through the tree limbs, casting barred shadows across Caramon's wide back, shadows that slid over him as he rode in and out of the sunshine. The scent of pine was sharp and crisp. The way was slow, the path overgrown. Maybe it's wrong to think this raced, Caramon said after a very long silence. I mean, Kit's our sister and all, but I don't much care if I ever see her again. I doubt we ever will, Caramon, Raistlin replied. There is no reason why our paths should cross. Yeah, I guess you're right. Still, I get a funny feeling about her sometimes. A tugging feeling, Raistlin asked. No, more of a jabbing feeling. Caramon shivered, like she was poking at me with a knife. <laughs>